Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Welcome. Today we have a very special guest host joining us for the episode. Please welcome the History and Public Policy Program's archivist, Aaron Scrimger, to the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. And I think given today's guest and topic, you're the perfect person to have here. Thanks for having me, Pete. Created two years after the founding of NATO and to address the need for a central military command structure, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, or SHAPE, is recognizing their 70th anniversary this month with a collection of documents that chronicle its founding. Today, we welcome Nick Nguyen, Public Disclosure Officer, NATO Archives, to the podcast to tell us a little bit more about that collection. Welcome, Nick. And we want to thank NATO's Public Diplomacy Division for giving us the chance to speak with you today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Can you just tell us briefly about SHAPE's founding and what significant impacts and importance it's had over its 70-year history? Sure. So, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the, uh, the actual anniversary for SHAPE's activation is uh, was the 2nd of April. And that's the day that Eisenhower basically uh, formally activated uh, the headquarters, which meant that at that moment, uh, he took command of the forces that were allocated, all the different national forces that were allocated to him for the defense of Western Europe. So he basically was uh, appointed the supreme commander uh, in late December 1950. And so he makes his way over to Paris uh, on January 1st, 1951, to start the work, right? And so this is a huge task. And as you mentioned, this takes place a couple of years, you know, a year after the, the signing of the actual treaty. And so one of the things that's actually quite important to recognize uh, with respect to Eisenhower's appointment as the Supreme Commander is that he predates uh, a Secretary General uh, uh, for NATO. NATO Secretary General, the position actually gets created in 1952. So both SHAPE and the Supreme Commander predate NATO's Secretary General and uh, NATO headquarters. Um, so that's that's that already is uh, quite important because there's a certain aspect where Eisenhower's role is to actually put the O in NATO. In other words, the organization aspect of it. Um, he comes in and he basically has to set up uh, an allied command structure. Uh, and this is, you know, five years after the end of the Second World War. Um, Korea, uh, the whole Korean War had just started. So there's a lot of anxiety uh, about what's going on in the world. And so the importance of this, especially in, you know, what happened in Korea, there's concerns that something might similar might happen in Germany. So all of a sudden American interest uh, is renewed in, uh, in the defense of Europe. And so, you know, basically 
uh, Eisenhower coming in and doing this. Uh, and there was, you know, it was a unanimous decision. Uh, there was no one else uh, that could have possibly taken on this mantle, especially from an American perspective, uh, that the European, uh, the European countries would have, would have accepted without, without uh, argument, given his, uh, let's say, successes and his, uh, you know, his historic uh, and his position uh, within uh, the Second World War. Sure. So, no, he comes in and it's a monumental task. Um, and that's one of the things that we wanted to, in, in terms of um, recognizing it this year especially, um, is focusing on exactly, you know, the legacy of what he was able to accomplish, which is basically 70 years worth of international military cooperation um, and American commitment uh, to NATO, uh, to the concept of NATO. Um, and in many ways, Ike, Ike is you know, serves as a great embodiment of the transatlantic bond. Um, you know, he comes, he's there, he's an American commander leading, you know, a, you know, European troops on European soil and basically establishing a foundation that has now lasted 70 years. So that's quite, uh, it's quite remarkable. Um, and when you look at, you know, and then looking at basically in what we have in terms of our records, uh, it's really it's really been interesting from my perspective. Like I'm hardly an Eisenhower scholar at all, uh, but to have read everything, to, to to look through the documents and basically see the, you know, what he's accomplished as a result of an extra of extraordinary diplomacy at work, right? So, the, the notion of establishing an, an allied command structure that's acceptable by all NATO nations, you know, uh, is particularly challenging, you know, to say the least. I mean. I mean, it's hard enough for 12 people to decide where to go to lunch, so let alone <laughs> to try to defend an entire continent, right? So, Fair I mean, point. One, and one of the things that one of the things that you kind of really see in terms of the challenges that he has, you know, as a supreme commander, not only leading troops in the field, but you know, balancing practical and logistic concerns versus national aspirations and personal ambitions within a military structure, right? And so. It's, you know, Ike comes out really as this, you know, as, as an exemplary warrior diplomat, right, where, you know, he finds a way to compromise and build consensus. Um, and he notices, especially within a supreme commander, in this position especially, about the primacy, the primacy of political concerns over, the, over certain military factors. And so that's the thing. This, you know, what he was able to accomplish in 1951, because he was only supreme commander from January 1st, 1951, to May 30th, 1952. Right? He he resigns in order to start his campaign for uh, presidency of the, uh, of the of the United States. Sure. So I mean, it's not a long, it's not it's not a very long period. But you know, what he was able to accomplish in that uh, amount of time, even though the structure, you know, the structure has evolved and changed and morphed a little bit, but the foundation is still there, right? And the values that underpin it are still there, right? And the labor that's still there, right? Still to this day, right? And it's, that's, that's, uh, it's quite a legacy. It's quite a legacy. That's that's fascinating, and Nick, you've, you've alluded to records here uh, mm -hmm. a couple of times, so I think we're going to want to shift the the conversation in that direction in just a second, and uh, and and for that, I do want uh, our archivist Aaron to, to to help dig into some of the the details of that. Um, for for those listening at home, uh, Nick and Aaron have just done the secret archivist handshake. I know this is a this is a podcast, but uh, you know I think it's still important to recognize that this uh, this connection exists. So, uh, Aaron, uh, I'll turn it over to you. Letting out the secret handshake, Pete. <laughs> 
Uh, so we were talking about the archives now. So those are housed at the NATO headquarters in Belgium. Uh, but what sort of materials do you have there? And is there a way that people can access them and interact with those records? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll give you a little, to answer the question, I'll kind of give you a little bit of a, I'll pre- preface it with a little bit of the history, right? So the NATO archives, yes, we are housed at NATO headquarters uh, located in Brussels, Belgium. And, you know, even though NATO is 70 years old, you just celebrated its 70th anniversary last year, or maybe now it's two years ago. I'm, I keep forgetting 2020 has been that kind of lost COVID year. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're coming up on 72 years now. But, uh, you know, the, the, the NATO archives was formally established in 1999, okay? Um, huh. That's not to say that the, the practice of archiving didn't exist uh, at NATO as an organization, but a formal archives, um, you know, with formal, you know, again, uh, practices and uh, responsibilities and, um, and just processes was finally, uh, was finally installed in 1999. And that's a significant year. That's NATO's 50th anniversary. Um, there's, uh, it's, there's, it's the turn of the century. NATO's already looking towards, you know, modernizing. Uh, part of that modernization was the acceptance of new members uh, at the 50th anniversary. So that's when Poland, Czech Republic, and Hungary joined. And there was also the announcement of the new headquarters and, and a whole new strategy. So, I mean, everything's, everything's changing in 1999. So the notion of that the archives is also announced as part as part of this modernization, uh, speaks to let's say you know like the the, the recognition of the importance of what an archives uh, has uh, has in relation to an international organization. Um, you know, it, we, we that's when with the the establishment of the archives uh, is basically linked to the opening of the NATO archives reading room, when scholar, uh, research, military historians and researchers could actually consult publicly declassified and publicly disclosed documents on site at NATO headquarters in its reading room. Um, uh, at the time, uh, it was the Secretary General uh, Javier Solana. He, you know, in his opening speech, he kind of acknowledged this uh, this event as, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a milestone in openness and transparency, especially for this organization. And again, I think that has links to that, the whole discourse of, moder- of modernization being open. And again, the, the timing of it is, pretty, is, 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 is very particular too. End of the Cold War, things are changing. To, you know, 9-11 hadn't happened yet, so there was a very different kind of sense of optimism in the air. NATO had just finished you know, its um, first military operations, right? So there's a lot of change going on. And you know, the, and you know, it's, it's almost you know, uh, ironic in the sense that something as uh, you know, like uh, if you, I don't want to call it backward-looking, but you know, uh, something like an archives that you know is actually kind of going to be linked to something to, to notions of uh, modernizing actually plays a role because you know there it's all about you know we were the whole point was that the the, uh, the records that were being uh, made available were documents that spoke to the uh, the founding of the organization, right? And that started to lead to policies that led to systematic public disclosure of NATO documents. So it wasn't just a one-off thing that this was going to be part of NATO business, of, of having an archives that would systematically uh, treat uh, and make available and accessible its documentary heritage. So... In terms of what we have, I mean, it's uh, in, when we first started, when the NATO archives first started, 
they were responsible for the uh, the records uh, of the of NATO headquarters. So, in other words, records of decisions and meetings of the Council of the North Atlantic Council and a lot of its supporting committees. Um, and but since then, we've also grown so that the the, the NATO archives now has NATO wide responsibilities, which means that we are now. We now administer the records of all NATO civilian and military bodies across the organization. So now we also have military planning documents. We have operational records that are coming in from the uh, from in theater, uh, a lot of infrastructure. In other words, the the entire administrative business as well as operational, let's say, activities of the organization will eventually be housed uh, and preserved in the NATO archives here at Brussels, here in Brussels. So, you know, in terms of how do people go about accessing this, well, we have a reading room. And that was opened in 1999. It was a very symbolic as well. It was the first time that civilians could come on to NATO headquarters and actually consult NATO documents. And so that's always been in place. We have uh, archivists that uh, in the archives that serve, uh, provide reference support. We provide finding aids. Um, you know, all the tools that are needed, um, digitization services so that, you know, you know these, uh, these records can find, you know, let's say an intellectual home, right? So have that kind of that, uh, that afterlife where they kind of uh, have a, that use value that goes beyond their original use and actually are able to be, you know, used in a kind of very different kind of manner, more in a, almost a global manner to kind of see how, you know, let's say the organization kind of worked, uh, on a, you know, from a, from a detached, larger kind of perspective as opposed to, you know, the kind of silo work that, you know, like, uh, or, you know, let's say governmental work uh, tends to be, right? So, you know, that, that was, a, you know, in terms of accessing it, that's the first, that's the first let's say, kind of line of defense that we've got. We also push a lot of information out uh, on a digital format. So we have a, a web resource called NATO Archives Online, um, and there we've tried, we've put, you know, and then we, we put a whole, we've tried to push out lots of our, our digital holdings onto this platform, and we use, um, it's all organized using uh, international standards for archival description. Um, and there it's really a tool for archival researchers to basically go in and you know, search records for themselves that are organized in a, in a very systematic way that, try to, that tries to give context to the documents so that they, you know, researchers can understand, you know, the, the documents in relation to each other and in relation to their, uh, how they were created. Um, I, I want to ask a question that we, we ask all of our guests who come on, uh, on the show, which is, is there a document you've seen, you've come across in your time working in, in, in the NATO archives that has surprised you or uh, stood out, stood out in, in, a, in a particular fashion? Is, is there one that still is, you know, comes to mind when, uh, when, when we ask about a, a particularly significant or cool or interesting or surprising document you've seen? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, when I first arrived here, I arrived here in 2009, and I really didn't know what I was getting in, getting into. I had no idea what the collection held, for example, right? It's just like, uh, you know, I had thoughts of, okay, there's a lot of, let's say, military documents, maybe records of meeting, kind of boring stuff, right? Maybe the occasional, like, wow, like a, a signature or a treaty, you know, like an Eisenhower signed treaty, it's something, something like that. I, I thought I would have to dig to see that, right? Uh, but actually, you know, um, Prior to, you know, prior to arriving at NATO, my, my previous life, uh, you know, I have a film studies background. 
And so when I first arrived, uh, one of the aspects of the collection that kind of piqued my interest that I, I was very surprised at finding was uh, they had a film collection here. And I was like, whoa, what is this? You know, come to, come, you know, come to Papa, right? I know what I'm doing in my spare time. So <laughs> I kind of started taking spare time to dig into these files, right? Because I had no idea that NATO, uh, you know, it makes sense, but it just didn't come across. It just, it's not the first thing that you think of that NATO actually for a, had a film production unit that was producing films, uh, you know, in the, in the 50s and the 60s. And not when I say films, I mean for theatrical distribution, uh, oh. Right. Um, you know, uh, as opposed to just, you know, like, say, the, the security documentaries and training videos that you would normally associate with uh, these kinds of organizations. Are, are we talking about like uh, like uh, newsreel kind of footage or are we talking about uh, like oh, actual I, I, like beyond theatrical? newsreel footage? Right. So literal short films. Documentaries wow. OK. And things like Interesting. That, right. Interesting. And so uh, when I was digging through these files and just kind of basically getting an understanding of what the role that they played. Uh, in the organization, I came across a document that uh, you know I was like, well, okay, you know, this this touches the film geek in me, right? Because it uh, <laughs> it was a, it was basically a receipt of payment that had the signature of Orson Welles on it. <laughs> so I'm like, well, okay, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, what's this connection, right? Well, since when yeah. did Welles work for for NATO, right? And this is never mentioned in any of the Welles scholarship. Uh, uh, it's never in any of his filmographies, you know, his participation. So I dug a little deeper, right? So, and I found out that, okay, well, Wells, Wells was paid, you know, Wells served as the, provided the voiceover narration for a, for a NATO film called uh, High Journey, right? And again, it took me a while to actually locate the film, uh, but the High Journey was basically a, a 30 minute film. It's, I call it a proto IMAX, uh, proto IMAX film. Because uh, it's very similar to drone footage, right? So it, w- it used the, uh, the the Allied the Allied air forces in Europe were loaned for the production of this film, and the, basically it's a film about air defense. But what it did, you know, the premise of the film was that it basically took aerial footage of all the major, let's say, monuments of European civilization and in the States as well, of all the NATO countries, basically, right? Uh, and it's great footage, and it's shot in 35 mil. Um, so and widescreen, so it looks very spectacular. Again, very made to be shown in theaters, and uh, he and and there was a script uh, that was written, and and Wells provided the screen, uh, the the voiceover. That's that's really cool. Uh, I, I I'm fascinated by the 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 video stuff as well. Uh, uh, but before we get too in too in the weeds about that, uh, uh, I'll, I'll turn it back over to Aaron for for a question. <laughs> So you were talking about the anniversary of Shape uh, when we started talking at the beginning of this podcast. Um, And can you tell us a little bit more about what NATO or Shape itself are doing to commemorate the anniversary of Shape's founding this year? Sure. So, I mean, I mean, I've been talking with my colleagues at Shape and what they've been doing uh, is actually because Shape is located just outside of Brussels is about about 60 kilometers away in a town called Mons. Uh, so Shape Headquarters, they've basically been collaborating locally with the Memorial Museum in, in, in the city, and they've created and they're and, they, and they've got a, um, a commemorative 70th anniversary exhibit at the museum that people can come visit and learn a little bit more about, uh, you know, the predecessor to it, the headquarters when it was located in France uh, before it moved to Belgium in 1967. So it kind of gives you it wants to give a, a range. That kind of historical survey overview of uh, of uh, of the anniversary, you know, and, and it's obviously it's local impact. 
um, here at headquarters, uh, on behalf of the headquarters, so the NATO archives, we decided, okay, well, how are we going to do this, right? So we decided that, okay, well, you know, we, we've got access to all these documents. Um, one of the things we thought would be worthwhile was to republish uh, the first volume of what's known as the Shape Histories. Right, and these are these shape histories were basically originally written and you know put into motion by General Eisenhower as a cure, um, because you know he's got a quote basically saying he called up he called out um, a retired Columbia professor, probably one of his old colleagues when he was working in Columbia, uh, when he was the president of the school, calls him out of calls him out of um, calls him out of retirement uh, and brings him back into active duty because he's like, look, I want you to record everything. Because uh, the quote that he's got is like, look, if shape succeeds, it will be a model for future corporation. And if it fails, we should know the reasons why. Okay. So he, you know, and so that's what these shape, these, that's what these histories are. That's literally, you know, like written from the perspective of somebody in the room about all the labor, uh, the organization, the meetings, the diplomacy, you know, and the machinery to get basically everything up and running. And so the first volume covers Eisenhower's tenure, right? So um, basically not only while he is there, but prefacing it, you know, like the lead in terms of, well, why does shape exist, you know, starting with the end of the Second World War and then, you know, kind of leading into its later development as, for, you know, af, once Eisenhower retires and, uh, and other supreme commanders take over and, uh, and basically evolve um, what he put into place. And so, okay, let's put that out. We put that out for wider circulation. It, it was declassified back in 2012. And so we thought, oh, now's a good time to bring it back into circulation. Because people like to have, one, one of the things about NATO, um, because of the military aspect, uh, is that there's a lot of turnaround, right? So people come in, do their service, and then go back to, uh, do, go back to, do, other, uh, to do other service. Mm -hmm. So there's, 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 a, there's a renewal of staff. And so some of the staff, you know, some of the people uh, around headquarters may not have actually, who weren't around in 2012 and just didn't have an opportunity to have these. So, and people seem to, people seem to like, you know, as much as people talk about the digital workspace and everything like that, we have found, especially from when it comes in, from an archival perspective, People tend to like the material object, especially when it comes to historical artifacts. And so republishing this, uh, you know, was, you know, and, and we republished it to be in a readable format as opposed to classic, you know, like, a, you know, government records type of thing. <laughs> so it looks like a book that you can put in your bag and then read. And it's very, it's easy to hold in your hand. We even, we paid a lot of attention to, you know, paper, you know, we've got a great printing and graphics unit here that uh, really helps in, you know, kind of, you know, making sure that not only the visual, but the haptic experience of reading reading is a pleasurable one. And so we thought, okay, well, if we're going to release that, we're going to, you know, like, we want to do something new. To so we put, you know, put together a, uh, an anniversary book, you know, uh, it was, that wanted to serve as a gateway to the history. So if, if we were republishing volume one, you know, I thought, okay, well, why don't we publish a volume zero? Right, which kind of, it's not officially a shape history, but it, it serves as a gateway to that history. Right, so let's focus on the activation, the, the anniversary date itself, and everything that covers the lead up to it, and what was accomplished in 1951. Right, and so that was my focus basically. Is this, and this is where the Eisenhower really comes in, right? Because it's like, okay, let, let's focus on, you know, again, it's really incredible in terms of when you think about what he was able to put into place in a year. Um, and so I cover some of that. Right, uh, it's meant to be read in one sitting. Uh, so that it's again, like I said, a gateway into the to the actual primary document, right? And that's that's always been my 
if you want to call it philosophy with respect to outreach. You know, I wave a carrot, right? It's not, you know, uh, my, the, the carrot is to get you to come closer so that you actually dig yourself, right? The book is there, you know, it's there for you to read. But, you know, it's on its own, it's daunting. But if you have a, you know, if you have a guide, uh, the, you know, like a finding aid, you know, or anything like it's something that helps, you know, make, take, make the medicine go down much easier. It's much easier to get into it. And so that's, that was the philosophy behind the anniversary book. <laughs> well, this, Nick, this has just been a really fascinating and illuminating discussion. Uh, for me, I've, I've learned a, a great deal about uh, not only uh, NATO and shapes history, but about the archives. And now I'm, I'm really curious to get in and start poking around uh, some of your, your documents. Of course, we will share with, uh, with our listeners uh, information about how they can access uh, the NATO records and uh, you know keep up to date with uh, with uh, future publications and, and releases coming from you guys, which I think uh, I, I can say personally, I will be uh, very very curious to see how um, and what materials are, are available in the sort of post Cold War era that we uh, that we are going to be moving into with the declassification period. So um, once again, Nick, Aaron, and I, and the rest of the History and Pol- Public Policy Program, really thank you for for coming and joining us on today's episode. Thanks for being here, Nick. Oh, great. It was a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.